I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, We'll look at a very familiar passage this evening, uh, one that uh, perhaps you may have memorized in Sunday school as a kid. Uh, It's an important passage. If you notice, one of the things that we've been doing throughout the course of this year is we've been looking at what the Bible says about the church. We've actually spent the past five months looking at one key feature, one key question so far. What is the church? Uh, And so we have spent a great deal of time looking at those various facets that Scripture gives regarding uh, what the church is, that it is God's manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. It is, to use the scriptural metaphors, united and bound up to Christ as a vine is to the branches, or the branches are to the vine, as the body is to its head, as the sheep are under a shepherd, as a bride is to her husband, and a home and a family is uh, to the house, to the cornerstone. We've considered the nature of the church visible and invisible, the church local and universal, the church as an organism, and the church as an organization. The church is militant and triumphant. We've looked at those distinguishing marks of uh, what constitutes a a true church and distinguishes it from a false church, and we've considered uh, the very foundation of our confession that we believe and confess one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What we see is there is a robust doctrine of what the church is. But now we move to what we might call part two of this series— As we ask ourselves, now in light of knowing what the church is, we ask ourselves, what should we be doing? What is the purpose of the church? That's something that we'll give attention to over the next three weeks as we consider um, the mission of the church, the fellowship of the church, and the worship of the church. Again, just kind of giving you a mental outline of where we are. Uh, we're now in that section where we consider what it is that the church should be doing. What is our purpose? And tonight we consider uh, the first of three purposes that we have, and that concerns the mission of the church. And so we give our attention now to Matthew chapter 28. Here is Christ uh, just on the verge of his ascension into heaven, giving the great commission to the church regarding what its mission statement really is. Let's begin in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Yet Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How precious a promise it is uh, that just as the Gospel of Matthew begins with the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, so now the Gospel of Matthew ends with Christ's great promise, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask as we consider and give attention to your word this evening uh, that you would illuminate our hearts and our eyes to see those things uh, regarding uh, what you have called us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So what is the church's mission? 
Uh, in the 1930s, uh, the mainline Presbyterian church actually established a commission to address this particular question, and particularly to praise their foreign missions work overseas in Asia. And, and at the end of uh, a two-year study report, uh, this commission published this report called Rethinking Missions. And in that report, they argued uh, that the task of foreign missions, or the task of missions in general, should be to place greater emphasis on education and health and welfare and spend less time on evangelism. Uh, One of his chief proponents of this particular report was the noted Pulitzer Prize-winning author Pearl S. Buck, who actually was one of the uh, the Presbyterian Church's uh, own missionary. She grew up uh, as the daughter of missionaries in China. She actually called the opening chapters of this report one of the finest expositions of religion she had ever seen. She goes on to say this, and I quote Pearl S. Buck, um, to some of us, Christ is still the divine Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of by the Holy Spirit, but to many of us, he has ceased to be that. I do not believe in original sin. And I agree with the Chinese who feel that their people should be protected from such superstition. This really exposed a massive fault line within the mainline Presbyterian church regarding the purpose of what the church has been called to do. In fact, it's one of the defining reasons why our denomination was formed. It was formed in response to this gross and aberrant view of what the church's mission actually is. Is the church, if we might put it like this, to be something analogous to the Red Cross? Now, I I want you not to misunderstand me. Um, Medical relief aid organizations are not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying going to to the hospital is a bad thing. The question we have is, is a different question. Is that what the church, is that what her mission really is? You know, I lived in Philadelphia uh, for, a, for four years for seminary, and I remember uh, attending one uh, Reformed church, different denomination, actually not even in one of our uh, NAPARC organizations, but I attended a, a broadly Reformed church uh, in downtown Philadelphia. And uh, the music was really great. Um, uh, really enjoyed kind of the aesthetics and the beauty of the building. Uh, but they spend, uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, giving great consideration to the question of redeeming art and the culture as being part of the church's mission. Again, I'm a big fan of art. You heard me open up by t- uh, this morning by saying one of my favorite places to be is the Philadelphia Museum of Art. I love great music of, of, of most kinds. Um, but again, we come back to the question, is this the church's mission? What is it that we're called to do? Uh, to quote, uh, to, to, to uh, ask the same question that Kevin DeYoung asked in his book, What is the Mission of the Church? Which I highly commend to everybody. It's a great little book. Uh, Kevin DeYoung asked this question, Is our goal and focus that of environmental stewardship, social justice, and community renewal? Again, the question is not whether or not those are good or bad things. The question is, is this the church's purpose? You see this in, in businesses even today. There's that so-called mission statement, that guiding statement that directs and distinguishes not just the bad from the good, but the good from the best. 
You know, if you were to open up a, uh, um, uh, a car lot, you know, what is the mission statement of that car lot? It is to, it is to sell cars. It is to make a profit. It is not to, uh, you know, uh, sell vitamins. Vitamins aren't a bad thing, but it's not what car salesmen are supposed to be doing. We ask a similar question with respect to the purpose of the church. It helps us reorient our own particular priorities to distinguish not just the bad from the good, but the lesser goods from the greater good. And the church's mission statement, it's not something that we have to try to contrive or make up uh, as something that is unique to this particular congregation. What we find is that Christ himself has already given his church a mission statement. That's found in the Great Commission. It's what we are, in fact, called to do. This is our charge. What is our charge? It's actually very simple. It is this, to make disciples. Um. If you uh, uh, were to read uh, Greek, you would find that this is actually the, the primary verb of the passage. Making disciples is the main verb, and the three other features that are subsumed under that describe what it means to make disciples. Those three commands you see being that of go, baptize, and teach. And so we have to think of the church's mission in terms of that threefold activity, all subsumed under that broad heading. What is the church's mission? To make not simply converts, but disciples. And so we'll consider the three facets of discipleship this evening. First, we'll consider Christ's own imperative command that he gives here to go, uh, the imperative to the church to baptize, and the imperative given uh, to the church to teach. Again, it's very simple. This is what we are called to do. Nothing fancy, nothing frilly. This is a a meat and potatoes mission statement. Um, But it really sharpens our particular focus on what it is that we as the people of God are called to do here in this world. So let's consider the first uh, command that Jesus gives, that of go. I think there is a temptation that we all uh, have experienced in the church to treat the church as some type of holy huddle. Um, to treat it as some type of, um, maybe what we might call a spiritual social clique. Us four, no more. You find that, that, that the, the group, uh, close group of three or four friends that you really like, and you do everything you can to maintain those friendships, and you don't want anybody else to be part of what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring. You know, there are some who would treat, even here in, in Oregon, uh, they would treat the church as kind of the last holdout of, let's say, you know, political conservatives in a largely uh, progressive state. What we find here is that's not the church's goal. The church isn't to simply find people of a similar socioeconomic status or people of like-minded political beliefs. The church is not called simply to hold down the fort and have a us-for-no-more mentality. We are not to be ostriches sticking our head in the sand. Rather, the very first thing Jesus says here in describing what it means to make disciples and what the church's great commission is, is in fact to go. In fact, this is the overarching concern of the Gospel of Matthew itself. Uh, as Christ, the, uh, the King of Israel, finally returns to his people, Matthew chapter 1. So we have the, the opening of the great laundry list of the, the genealogy. Here is the return of the King. 
Uh, and he finally comes, and what is it that Christ comes proclaiming? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And what is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth? What we've seen, it is in fact the church. And Jesus goes on in his teaching ministry, and this is the focus of Matthew's gospel. He gives a series of parables regarding the nature of the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God look like in this earth? And Jesus accompanies those parables with a set of teachings and instructions for the people of God and how it is that they are to live as a kingdom people, as pilgrims in this barren wasteland. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. How is it that we are supposed to live? You have heard it was said through Moses Moses said, thus says the Lord, but now Christ says what? Not simply thus says the Lord, but Christ says, I say to you, because Christ is the Son of God. He is the one who has come bearing all authority, who bore our sins, undergoing that estate of humiliation, but now being risen from the dead, Christ now says, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me, so now I commission you as the the citizens of this heavenly kingdom to go and make disciples of the nations. Our goal should be to see the church grow. The church is called to be an evangelistic community. Jesus does not say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so just you know, uh, get in the huddle, circle the wagons, make sure nobody else gets in. Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so now go out out with confidence and proclaim the message of the good news of the kingdom of God. There should be an outward focus to the church's mission. Notice this, it is an outward focus not just of individuals, but it is the outward focus of the church as a whole. The church as a whole is an evangelistic community. It is a communal activity. Not everybody, uh, uh, you know, you might not feel comfortable uh, going through all the systematic points of doctrine uh, with your neighbor, but that's okay because you know what you can do? You invite your neighbor to church where they can sit under the ministry of the gospel, where they can hear the good news. As the gospel goes out week in and week out, to be reminded of the same thing, what is it? That we are sinners in need of a Savior and this is what God has commanded us to do and to believe in response to the situation with which we have been confronted. Perhaps your gifting is hospitality. Perhaps you have friends or neighbors who don't want to grace the, uh, who, who don't want to cross the threshold to the church, but they're willing to attend a book study. It's an evangelistic opportunity. Make the most of it. We have to uh, move, you know, evangelism, uh, we all have our particular gifts. And not everybody is gifted with the gift of evangelism. Uh, Paul will speak of evangelism as a distinct gift. In fact, the church sees it as a distinct calling and an office and vocation. But we're all called to be what we might call small evangelists and maybe just doing what you can in terms of inviting somebody over to your home for a meal offering to pray for them or with them, to invite them to church. Perhaps the most important thing you could even do is pray for them, and they might not even know that you're praying for them because it is the Lord who works. And unless the, works, unless the Lord works in their heart, they would never be converted anyway. 
Evangelism is not just the mission of individuals separately. It is the task of the church corporately, both as a congregation and as the church universal. That's why when I attend presbytery twice a year, uh, one of the things that we attend to is our concern for missions, both home missions, in other words, establishing new churches here in the Pacific Northwest, as well as foreign missions. And this is why we have in our prayer list, and of course we can't name them by name because uh, the, the service is live streamed over the internet, but you have in your prayer lists our own missionaries that our uh, uh, church denomination supports. Be praying for them. Be lifting them up because they are far from home. And they're doing great work, but we are called to accompany them in that evangelistic effort by lifting them up in prayer. There's so many things that goes into evangelism. Uh, It's not just sharing your faith. It's praying for those who are in those situations. It's showing hospitality. It's inviting people uh, into your home. It is being a witness. And it's also recognizing the Great Commission means that somebody has to uh, commit the Scripture, which was initially written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, has to be committed to new languages. Perhaps your calling might be to do translation work, uh, to translate the Bible into a different language, or to support those who do. There are so many different ways in which we apply the Great Commission with respect to the nature of evangelism. It is not simply standing on a street corner with a bullhorn yelling at people. I would say that might not even be the best way to do it. Use the gifts that God has given you, both individually and us as a corporate body, as we consider what does it mean to be salt and light here Uh, in the Willamette Valley. So the task of the church, the mission of the church is, in fact, missions. Should be easy to remember. What's the mission of the church? Missions. It's part of it. We'll also talk about the church's fellowship and worship in the coming weeks. But now we move to the second feature that Christ gives as part of the Great Commission. He says to baptize. Of course, that is something that's uh, tasked to the church, not each and every individual. We're not saying for you to go, you know, find somebody in, um, you know, uh, uh, Fred Meyer uh, and, and then, you know, dump a water bottle of them and baptize them and run away. Um, that's not how you do it. I'm thinking of that movie Nacho Libre. If you remember, Nacho Libre tries to do this. If you've been baptized and he, he dunks his buddy's head in the water and thinks, oh, it works. That's, that's not exactly what baptism is. But it is given to remind us that Christianity is not a spectator sport. I think so many of us will have grown up in contexts where you think of Christianity as that isolated affair, where you think of Christianity as nothing more than just me and my Bible. I don't need the body of Christ. I can simply just read my Bible and everything can be sufficient on its own. I remember an old, watching an old episode of King of the Hill. It's one of my favorite cartoons um, and, and Tom Petty uh, shows up in, in, in the show at some point. You didn't think you'd be getting a uh, uh, pop culture introduction to, to grown-up cartoons, but um, Tom Petty is this character in this TV show. If you don't know who the, Tom Petty is, classic rock singer from Gainesville, Florida. Um, he, he, he's talking to a buddy at a local bar and says, I don't need to go to the church. I, I, can, I can 
I can be with God in the trees. I can be with God out in the forest or by the creek as I'm fishing on a Sunday morning or as I'm sitting here at this bar getting drunk. And his buddy looks at him and goes, basically, sounds like a good idea, but you're an idiot. But how many of us think of Christianity like that or have friends who think of Christianity uh, in those uh, terms? I, I just, me and my God, we're, me and God, we're on good terms. He just leaves me alone and I just, I try to live a good moral life. That is not what we see here and what Christ is commanding his people to do. Baptism signifies a number of things and among those things it signifies entrance into the visible community of the people of God. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Going to church is much different than going to the movies. You go to the movies, you pay your ticket, you sit there, you eat your bowl of popcorn, um, have a good time, you don't have to talk to anybody, and when all is said and done, you can walk out the door and everything's just fine. How many people treat church like that? They just show up on a Sunday morning. They might enjoy the music. They kind of zone out for the sermon. But that's really it. What we see is the church is something much more than that. That's why we've spent so many months looking at the nature of the church. The church is the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. It is the people of God who have assembled to worship God in spirit and in truth. It is God who calls His people to worship and it is people who respond in worship. It is God who through His Word reminds us of our sin. And so we cry out to the Lord for pardon and for mercy. And it is the Lord through His Word who assures us of the forgiveness of sins that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord who through the preaching of the Word instructs us in the way in which we are to go. And it is the people of God who respond corporately, not only in prayer, but in song. Christianity is not a spectator sport, and baptism reminds us of that as we are called to be baptized and to join ourselves to a visible congregation. Not just to do that, to say, ah, yes, a new social club like the Kiwanis Club or Boy Scouts or something like that. No, there are, in fact, requirements and obligations. The ongoing exhortation of repentance and faith. To repudiate this world in anticipation of the world to come. It's one of the things that Paul speaks of when he elaborates on the nature of baptism in Romans chapter 6. You have died with Christ to the elements of the world and you have been raised to new life. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just as Israel passed through the Red Sea into Moses. So it gives us a picture of our baptism. As the Belgian Confession will say, that Christ Himself is our Red Sea. His baptism signifies our deliverance from sin and its tyranny, and so we are called to improve our baptism, as the larger catechism says, or as Luther says, remember your baptism. We've been incorporated into the covenant of grace. We become the possessors of God's promises. And these are promises that extend not only to you, but to your children as well. So it includes instructing and raising up your children in the faith. Right? Baptism is not simply a rite of, a magical rite of passage. Rather, it is a sign that signifies our incorporation into Christ. That is why baptism is always accompanied by an explanation of what baptism is signifies. And that is what leads us to our third and final point. So we are called to baptize 
and to teach. There's real instruction that is offered in the life of the church. We are not simply called to give you know, kind of three points on how to be a better husband, father, sister, daughter, and so on, although those things are uh, wrapped up in the imperatives that Scripture commands. You think of the second half to any of Paul's letters. It gives those so-called household codes. What does it look like to be a loving father? What does it look like to be a caring son or an obedient wife or a loving mother? And yet what we find is that there is much more to that as well. It is ethical instruction that is grounded in the great declaration that Christ has died and has risen again in accordance with the Scriptures. This was Jesus' own messianic mission. When you read the Gospels, this is part and parcel of His own commission by the Father. As Jesus himself, in his very first sermon after being baptized, what is it that he proclaims? He enters a synagogue and reading Isaiah 61 and telling them that the word of God has been fulfilled before their eyes, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus actually says that proclamation is his main goal three times there. And so that the the healing and the exorcisms that he performs are attending signs that attest to the great deliverance that Christ brings through the proclamation of the gospel. That was the Lord's chief task. And now the church has been tasked to communicate His words to the world. This is what Jesus Himself says, Go and proclaim all and teach all that I have instructed you. Not just most, not just some. Everything that I have commanded you. To observe it all. The whole counsel of God. Jesus says elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, our goal is not simply to make converts, but to make disciples. In talking with our non-believing friends about the gospel, I think it's, it's, it's fine language to talk about asking Jesus into your heart. It is great to summarize the gospel in a few key points. To use the Romans Road of Salvation, if you're familiar with that old track, uh, I believe from Evangelism Explosion. These are good things, but we cannot simply stop there. That's the starting point. He might actually give a a nice brief overview, but what Jesus says here is we are to be diligent to teach not just the, uh, the highlight reel, but teach believers to observe everything. In other words, discipleship is a lifelong endeavor. This is why the nature of preaching in Reformed churches is largely expository preaching. It keeps me from getting out uh, 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 from under uh, the thumb of, of, of hitting a passage going, oh, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip to something else. Expository preaching keeps me honest because I have to tell myself every Monday, you've got six days to figure out what's going on. And you just can't make it up because we have to be faithful to proclaim what Christ himself has taught and what it means for us in light of the advent of the Messiah. Christianity is about more than having people ask Jesus into their heart. It's not a bad starting place. 
but it has to be more than that. I was once a part of a college ministry. Um, uh, and when I was a, an undergrad, I attended a college ministry where uh, their goal was to see people come to a Bible study uh, and uh, essentially, you know, uh, profess faith in Christ as soon as possible, and then have having have them lead a Bible study within the next two or three weeks. You know, maybe you should give them time to grow in the faith. Again, the goal is not simply making converts. This isn't simply a, a pyramid scheme. Here, let me tell you something uh, real quick, and, and you sign on even though you don't know what you're signing up for, show up, and then you get everybody else to do the same. There has to be a real heart change. The focus needs to be on discipleship, even down to the details, even as we saw this morning, even down uh, to our wallets. Discipleship entails so much. This is why we must pre- claim the whole counsel of God. This is why a confession of faith is incredibly helpful, by the way. Because it gives us, it helps give you a bird's eye view of the main and salient features of what Scripture teaches. This is why learning, I commend to everyone here the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is a helpful starting point in the task of discipleship. But discipleship is a lifelong enterprise. It's not simply a one and done ordeal. Shorter Catechism, question three, what is it that the Scriptures teach? It teaches everything that we are to believe and to do concerning what God has said. What Scripture says concerning God and man, sin, salvation, Christ, His church, all the things we are to believe and all the things we are to do regarding our ethical duties, the Ten Commandments, and prayer, the very things for which we hope. And so what we see, just uh, as a cursory overview, is that Christianity, contrary to what Pearl S. Buck was saying, is more than simply a program of social reform. Rather, it is, in fact, a rehearsal of fact. Paul himself writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, that I pass down to you the very thing that's been handed down to me, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was raised again from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. As Christ Himself says, so now, repentance and faith must be declared among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. That's Luke chapter 24. Christianity is not simply a program of social reform though we hope that people's hearts would be changed here in the community, and as a result, there would be reform in broader society. Our goal is a proclamation of the gospel of individuals to see them come to faith in Christ, to see their own sin and their need for a Savior, to call them to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and the kingdom of God has manifested itself here in the valley in any Bible-believing church that faithfully proclaims God's Word. You know, I am not here to belittle social reform programs like the Salvation Army or relief aid efforts or community involvement or arts programs. Those are all uh, good things in their own right. The question we have before us, is this the church's, inf- is this the church's mission? I'm not saying that Christians as Christians can't be part of that. I think it'd be a great thing if you had a, a group of Christians who got together and said, hey, let's build a hospital that cares for the people. And, and this could be a, a basic way in which we can make uh, uh, you know, the, the gospel known as we, as we care for people. 
But there's a difference between an association of Christians and what they do uh, in terms of their own daily vocations and callings and what the church itself as the church is called to do. And again, it's not to diminish the importance of material aid. As we're seeing now in, our, in Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians, there's a great concern that the church holds in caring for the poor within the church and in showing diaconal needs, but we can't let those things subvert our primary task, which is to preach the gospel. To use a, a real brief thought experiment What would happen if the Salvation Army closed up all of its stores today? I don't necessarily want to see that happen, but what would happen if it did? Well, we all know that there are other relief organizations that would pick up uh, the task and continue uh, uh, caring for providing clothing and food for the homeless. There are other organizations that do that. Now I want you to think about this. What would happen if every church stopped preaching the gospel? Where would the good news be found? Where would it be heard? I think this is what reminds us of the church's unique calling in this day and age. We are called to do something that no other organization is called to do. Everyone should help their neighbor. But it is the church that has been commissioned with the great message of proclaiming sin and salvation from sin in Christ alone. And if we stop doing that, there is no other institution on earth given to pick up the slack. If we fail in our mission here, then we have an entire generation that dies and goes to hell. We cannot rid ourselves of the task of evangelism and discipleship and baptism, because there is no other place on earth that is able to do what the church has been tasked to do. So hopefully that helps reorient our our gaze as we think about what is it that we're doing when we have our book studies or Bible studies, when we as a church are praying for others. What is our purpose? And hopefully it helps us to see that our job is to make disciples and the task of missions, both at home and abroad, and the baptism and incorporation of new believers, and in the instruction of all believers, as we seek to be conformed by God's Word more and more to the image of Christ, by the power of His Spirit, as He has promised that Christ Himself is with us to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we ask that You would call and cause this church to be faithful to the task that has been set before us. That we might be diligent to observe all that you have commanded, that we might instruct others to observe all that you have commanded. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.